One, please. 75 cents. What if I'm in the movie? What do you mean? I mean, I'm in the movie. I'm Sharon Tate. You're in this? Mm-hmm. I play Miss Carlson, the Klutz. That's me. <laughs> but that's the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Well, that's me, the girl from Valley of the Dolls. Another episode of Based on a True Podcast, the podcast series where we talk about how Hollywood tells true stories, biopic, and the like. As always, I'm Kristen here with Kim. And if you've been following along so far, then you know that this is our last episode in our four week, I don't want to say tribute, but exploration of the Manson crimes. We started out with a look at the dueling interpretations of Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter in film. We have talked about the Manson girls, and we talked about Tate's exploitation and the Sharon Tate story through her eyes, kind of. And it brings us all here to the most recent, the splashiest, and the most controversial yes i'm gonna say this is more controversial than the haunting of sharon tate was because Mm -hmm. the only people that really saw that movie was kim and i we are talking about (laughs) quentin tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood this is not just the story of the sharon tate it's also an exploration of hollywood specifically los angeles in the late 1960s the transition from the studio system into the more esoteric film school, new wave kind of style of filmmaking, the transition of television shows, crime, told through the eyes predominantly of a fading TV star, Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his stuntman, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. So, okay, let's... Get the elephant out of the room. This is a uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. He, he wrote it and directed it. I saw this when it came out. And we had a lot of thoughts about this. I know you and I talked about this well before it came to theaters. And I was already a little leery of it when it was being discussed. Because as we know, Tarantino has done revisionist history before. And we talked a lot about this in the Haunting of Sharon Tate episode. And I don't necessarily want to repeat myself, but I feel like watching this movie and watching that movie so close together, a lot of the issues that I had with this film, I didn't necessarily have with the Haunting of Sharon Tate and vice versa. And I'm interested to figure out why that was. Before we get into it, Short little ad for our Patreon. If you like our Patreon series that we're doing, you like stuff like this, please tell your friends to subscribe to our channels, whether that's this Patreon, Patreon website, as well as our Twitter at ticklish underscore biz and our YouTube channel and our Instagram. Help us out. We are looking to get 300 subscribers on Patreon so that we can start a new ambitious series on TCM's The Essentials. That gets the advertising out of the way. So, Kim, what did you think of this movie, especially after watching it as we talked about The Haunting of Sharon Tate last week? Okay. So, I, like you, watched this film when it came out. And I will say that I had such strong feelings about this film that my rewatch of it early this week is the first time I have had the courage to venture back to it. I like a number of Tarantino films. There's a few Tarantino films I really like. This is has historically not been one of them. Revisiting this film, I really made an effort to, as I sat down to watch this, I wanted to have a more objective 
picture of it. I consciously went into this knowing my feelings for it when I saw it in theaters. So I knew about this, but I also wanted to try and evaluate it from a speaking like an analytical film professional about it on the podcast. And it didn't help. (laughs) And in truth, I think I felt the same things you did. It almost, to me, stung a little bit more coming so quickly after The Haunting of Sharon Tate, because there are, and I'm sure we will get into this, there are drastic differences in perspective as we deal with this film. There are differences in the handling of certain subjects. There are differences in perspective. And I think these films, like you just said, incredibly eloquently, they kind of show you where the other one fails. So while The Haunting of Sharon Tate is not a good film by any stretch of the imagination, there are things that it handles a hundred times more competently than Quentin Tarantino does in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. While Quentin Tarantino, of course, does something, you know, leaves The Haunting of Sharon Tate. But ultimately, my reaction to these films has been basically exactly the same for both. I see these films on, and I'm sorry, film bros, but I see these films very much on an even keel. That's interesting because I would say that watching this, and I've seen this more than once, I do consider myself a Tarantino fan for the most part. I, understand the flaws and I think those flaws have just gotten louder as he's aged and they're certainly on display and we're going to talk about them from the exploitation to the usage of Bruce Lee in this movie to Tarantino continuing to make asinine statements about everything and I didn't realize until we did this project how a lot of the issues that I felt Tarantino had used with this movie were in all of the Manson stuff that we've talked about so far. So the emphasis on film stars children, which I thought at the time, as I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when it came out, was his cheeky way of saying that the Manson girls were just entitled, spoiled children of privilege because he had Kevin Smith's daughter and he had Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman's daughter and, you know, all of these things. Well, we've done four other episodes or three other episodes where that's all been done before. We talked about the fact that there was Greer Grammer and Josh Brolin's daughter and Manson's Lost Girls. We talked about how Sosie Bacon was in Charlie Says. Lydia Hurst in The Haunting of Sharon Tate. So that is not new. And I didn't know that until we really looked at that. And I think that says a lot about, again, how we look at the Manson family in general from a Hollywood perspective. You know, I didn't realize that the narrative of Manson kind of being this petty non-entity in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was something that a lot of the other movies have grappled with, whether that's Charlie Says to Country GQ Manson and Manson's Lost Girls or even Bugliosi's Halter Skelter. So it's fascinating that for all the ways Tarantino feels that he is original, everything he did in this movie had been done by other filmmakers Mm -hmm. with regards to Manson. Well, Tarantino's shtick, for lack of a better word, is built on the nostalgia that came before it. Tarantino's entire career has been built on making a spin on genres that have been done before, on styles that have been done before, and films that have been made before. He is a filmmaker who thrives on making references, making, I'm sure there's a, I want to say parody, but that's not quite the right word. There's a film schooly term I'm sure I'm missing. But for all the films that of his that I like, he is not truly an original filmmaker. He writes some great stories. He's an incredibly savvy writer. But as a filmmaker, most of what he does thrives on the connections and the memories that it harkens to things that have been done before. And this entire film is a love letter to this era in Hollywood. And to me, I think that is the only way where this film stands up as I watch it. I struggled. This was a conclusion that I came to as I was watching it this time around. 
as he is trying to do about four different things. And this monster is a, this movie's a beast. It's what, two, two hours and 45 minutes at the very least. And there are, it could have used the bread pen, but there are a number of tasks he's trying to do. And really the only one that works is this sense of nostalgia that he is reveling in for this Aaron Hollywood because, and it came back to, I was reminded because he comes at this entire period with this entire film. So you have the Manson portion, you have the Tate portion, you have Cliff and Rick. And each of these parts kind of has that same wistful nostalgia for the Hollywood of the past. That works for some, but when you get into certain other areas, the Manson stuff, the it, you tap into the kind of the gross titillating stuff that I've touched on before in these episodes. So he's, you're completely right. This is stuff we've seen before. And once he's struggling with the exact same problems. Exactly. I mean, the editing thing, it's something that I feel Tarantino has been critiqued for ever since Sally Mankey passed away, because I feel like she was the editor that could really keep him in control, but that's a discussion for a different time. And you're totally right that what works about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the nostalgia for 1960s Los Angeles. I will tell you that the moments that I am always dazzled by, and I know many people that love this movie, and I think a lot of it has to do with how lovingly he recreates and talks about Los Angeles. And Very as someone much. who lives in Los Angeles now, I understand, you know, if I didn't live here, I would feel envious because he makes it look so compelling. And because I do live here, I appreciate it for its wistfulness because I know that that is not how it is per se anymore to watch the neon signs light up in that one sequence or to watch Cliff drive down Hollywood Boulevard and pass the Pussycat Theater or the Frolic Room or Larry Edmonds places that I know are where they are. I mean, it gives it such a fantastic feel. And even for somebody like us, who we spend all of our time talking about this golden era, even watching the sequence of characters going to the Playboy Mansion and just having this ironically very chaste party, which I thought was hilarious watching it this time around, because it's the Playboy Mansion and there's people in bathing suits and like bunnies who are fully clothed dancing. I was like, well, this certainly seems like family day at the Playboy Mansion. Not what I know what happened in the grotto. Exactly. (laughs) You don't got to soft soap me on this, Quentin. You know, but I love that element of it. I love the fairy tale aspect of it. If you had taken out the Tate stuff, I think I would have appreciated this movie a lot, a lot. 100%. So I want to talk about the Tate stuff. Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate. And let's get the looks out of the way. Because this was the one big thing that I talked about when we talked about the haunting of Sharon Tate. My biggest problem, there are many problems, but one of my biggest problems with this movie is that Margot Robbie, yes, does hold a passing resemblance to Sharon Tate. And yet the makeup department did absolutely nothing to emphasize that. There's not the fall, the long hair, the very straightened, overly banged 1960s, late 60s hairstyling. There's not the deep eye crease or the fake lashes or any of the things that would really make this identifiable as Sharon Tate. And there's a moment where she goes to watch The Wrecking Crew at the Bruin Theater in Westwood. And she's standing by the poster with Sharon Tate. And later on, she's watching the real Sharon Tate in this movie. And all of those little things, I just thought, why didn't we attempt to make her look like Sharon Tate? I get there's a double-edged sword to it, right? A good actor shouldn't necessarily have to look like the person they're playing. Kate Blanchett didn't look like Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator. But they didn't just throw Kate Blanchett in the aviator looking like Kate Blanchett. They attempted to change her hair coloring. They changed her hairstyling. They put her in makeup that aided in that performance. She had the voice. There's really nothing about Margot Robbie that makes me think that she's acting like Sharon Tate so much as she's acting like Margot Robbie. And it really left a bad taste in my mouth because it almost made me feel like the concept was here's a hot blonde girl 
Sharon Tate was a hot blonde girl. It succeeds in turning Sharon Tate into a plot device. That is purely to me plain and simply what he's doing here. For some reason, he has this desire to turn this into a Manson story, which I don't understand why it is even a Manson story. It is perfectly fine in many instances without. But in this case, yes, we have Margot Robbie looking completely like Margot Robbie. Though this time around, I did wonder, and I was wondering if you had a similar, I was thinking about that because you have a very extended scene at the movie theater where Sharon Tate comes up to the ticket window and has to explain who she is. It's like, I'm in, I'm in the movie. And the, act, the girl sitting at the ticket booth clearly knows who Sharon Tate is because she has to go, oh, the girl from Valley of the Dolls. You're not her. So there's this very long scene about how this woman is saying she's Sharon Tate, but doesn't look like Sharon Tate. And then it's exacerbated by she has to have her picture taken by the poster. And then she goes into the movie and is watching the real Sharon Tate on screen. I was found myself wondering if that was a deliberate move by Tarantino addressing the fact that she does not look like Sharon Tate. It popped into my head if that's what he was doing. Why? He would do that I'd rather than just make her look like Sharon Tate. I don't know, but it is one of the long line of things I feel that is disrespectful in this film, in the handling of this subject matter. I have harped on each one of these for their inability to depict Jay Sebring in a good way. This film may actually kind of do Jay Sebring a little bit of justice. It looks like they've looked at a picture, but they haven't even bothered to take a look at Sharon Tate, it seems like to me, because it's dropping a blonde girl in there and figuring they'll pass. The Sebring stuff is is interesting because, yeah, they certainly get somebody who looks a bit more like the essence. I, I he has it, a bit of the essence. I wish it wasn't Emil Hirsch, considering that Emil Hirsch is not a great person, according to what we've heard about him. I do still think the point still stands that you brought up in The Haunting of Sharon Tate, that the haircut still doesn't look like a guy who makes a lot of money doing men's hairstyling because it's not that great. But the you bring up that sequence where she has to say who she is. And I interpreted that in a completely different way that I don't want to say right now because I don't want to talk about the ending. But a lot of it, I think, goes back to that question that we really talked about when we started talking about Wonderland and why these movies exist. Are these characters famous because they died? And did their dying make them famous? And I feel like that kind of is what Tarantino ends up treading in that scene, because keep in mind, she says, I'm Sharon Tate from Valley of the Dolls, and the girl calls the usher out. And she says this, she says she's in Valley of the Dolls, and he's all Patty Duke. She's like, no, the other one, the girl from Peyton Place. No, the other one, you know, so this concept of she was not famous. She was not somebody that people would have recognized. And then that just leaves me to question is his point saying her death is what made her immortal. And if that's the case, I don't think Sharon Tate would necessarily want that to be her legacy, you know, that her name is synonymous with this tragic event. And even when we talked about the haunting of Sharon Tate and the concept of Tate exploitation and, and utilizing her name to create a horror movie, a lot of the things that I thought I would have an issue with here or that I did have an issue with here, I didn't necessarily have in that film. We brought up in The Haunting of Sharon Tate how there's a sequence where she's reminiscing about her wedding day to Roman Polanski and they're showing footage of the real Sharon Tate and the real Roman Polanski. And we talked about utilizing that as a way to maybe get ahead of like, we know this woman that we're looking at, Hillary Duff, is not Sharon Tate. This is the real Sharon Tate at her happiest. Here it is. I felt that was at least more respectfully inserted. To watch her watching The Wrecking Crew, I still think the intent is respectful in the sense of like, look at Sharon Tate watching this movie and realizing how happy she made people. But at the same time, she is still this anonymous figure in the theater. Nobody recognizes her. Nobody knows who she is. And it also points out the glaring element that the movie really doesn't have an interest in saying who Sharon Tate is enough to even make Margot Robbie look like her. 
it was weird to watch two movies do the exact same thing with real footage and how I interpreted each of those usages. At the very root of it, I have always taken through both of these films, I choose to read the inclusion of the footage of the real Sharon Tate essentially as a tribute. It's paying acknowledgement to this woman who was, she was a human being. She was an actor. It's trying to include her image in there when, I mean, we've talked about in with the passage of some generations, she's turned from an actress to the woman who was murdered by the Manson family. So at one level, I choose to see it that way. As I was sitting here listening to you discuss what jumped into my head, and this thought is not fully fleshed out, but as I was watching it this go around, I first time watched The Purple Rose of Cairo not too long ago. And I drew an immediate parallel between that scene, Margot Robbie sitting in the theater watching Sharon Tate on screen with the ending of Purple Rose of Cairo, Mia Farrow watching the film on screen. And I find myself making a jump going from, you know, reality versus fantasy, some yet to be expanded upon idea that um, this is too new for me to really go to it, but she's, this is the fantasy of life being, you know, up there with Dean Martin and pulling all kinds of stunts. But ultimately it does not work because I was equally as distracted this time around that I was the first time we're watching her. You're exactly right. She's this anonymous person in this movie theater, you know, propping her dirty feet up on the seat. And it's like, got to come back to the feet because they're all over this. Tarantino puts the feet out there. So how can we not comment on them? Shouldn't shouldn't kink shame. But my God, that man's foot fetish. I mean, it is all over that film. And no, I think. I mean, the cynic side in me says, yeah, this is literally a statement to Sharon Tate's anonymity, her, the fact that she was still an up and coming actress. She had done films, but she was still what, very young. She was like, what, 26? She did not have a huge number of credits to her name. So I don't. I have not studied into her career that deeply. I don't know had she how recognizable she would have been after something like Valley of the Dolls. So it's hard to say, but it that entire, especially her having to talk herself into the theater and having to convince people she's Sharon Tate, that felt like it was almost taking her down a peg. It felt malicious to me. Well, according to, I haven't read it yet, but according to people who have read Tarantino's novelization of this movie, where he goes long on creating more of the backstory. Supposedly Sharon Tate has a whole backstory of like what would have happened to her career like after this. I've not read that yet, so who knows. But I want to put a pin in that for a second and the long-term implications of what this movie is saying about Sharon Tate at the end. I think one of the big things too, and again, not to give Haunting of Sharon Tate much credit, but I also feel that there is a bit more nuance into how Sharon Tate, her relationship with others at that time, at this very delicate time in her life. Now, mind you, the movie starts before she is pregnant and we see her life before all of this. Her and Roman Polanski have come back to America from whatever they're doing. And I think that it's very interesting what a fairy tale presentation of her life this is. Keep in mind, she maybe only has about 100 words in this entire movie, in this whole two-hour and 41-minute feature. And there's a whole portion of her where the camera doesn't even let her speak and lets Kurt Russell narrate what she's thinking, which Kurt Russell narration in this movie just makes not a lick of sense. It's so infrequent and ridiculous. But she barely talks. And so what do we really see about her life at the leading up to this? You know, she lives with her husband. She has a dog. And the, I love that Dr. Saperstein does come back in this movie after we saw him in Haunting of Sharon Tate. Although I think this version of Saperstein is a bit more close to the actual dog. That I, was, I was going to say, is this Dr. Saperstein at least the correct breed? He seems to be the correct breed. And they're going to the Playboy Mansion. That is their life. We get this weird 
leering camera, like looking at her sleeping, which is again, really odd. But I was really struck by that Playboy mansion scene outside of it being so chaste in 1960s, looking like beach blanket bingo. But they meet up, Roman Polanski and, and Sharon Tate meet up with Sebring, played by Neil Hirsch, Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, and Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen, which that's a choice. And I was really irked by the use of Michelle Phillips in this movie for no reason, especially if you know that at the time that this movie would have taken place, Roman Polanski and Michelle Phillips were engaged in a very open affair that Sharon Tate was not happy about. And that was the implication of her believing that he was cheating when she I was did not know that. when she was making the movie that they talk about that in the haunting of Sharon Tate, that she believes that he's cheating again. Well, he was there. At least he had cheated on her with Michelle Phillips. And I was really torn watching her dance with this woman that was obviously in a flagrant relationship with her husband that vaguely looked like her almost like we did little history other than to say like she knew these people, but it culminates with, Steve McQueen, who I don't actually have any evidence that proves that they were close. Steve McQueen and Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, where Steve McQueen is telling some rando girl the love story, the ballad of Sharon and Jay is what I call it, where he's talking about how Sharon Tate left Jay Sebring to marry Roman Polanski. And it all ends with him saying that when, quote, this is not me talking, that this is the movie. When that Polish prick screws up, Jay will be there. And I was kind of, A, I was like, why are you telling this to this random girl? Do you know this girl? Does she know who these people even are? What is the relationship here? It's just poor storytelling. It's, story it's clunky telling. writing. It's, it's clunky writing for the audience that might not know this backstory. You found no other way to tell this backstory. Exactly. And also, it goes back to what we said, I think, in episode one or two of this series, the romanticization of J.C. Bring and Sharon Tate. Now, I have no reason to believe they did not love each other. They, oh, they did. I mean, they were incredibly close friends. But I have a real problem, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but knowing what we know about Roman Polanski as a person. Now, it felt like, Tarantino was kind of sitting up on his high horse with the benefit of hindsight being like, see, see, if she had lived, Polanski did what he did. Jay and her would have gotten together and it would have been roses and sunshine. And again, it's a little too wink at the audience, hoping that they know what really transpired. And it's like, oh, isn't that sad? If they had lived and Polanski had done the horrible thing that he's accused of doing, they would have been together. A, it's clunky writing. B, it's just unnecessary. And C, who are you telling the story to? He's telling the story to the audience. That sequence literally only exists so the audience know that backstory between Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring. And the fact that Tarantino probably sitting there on his typewriter laptop, you know, cell phone, whatever he writes on, wanted to probably get that line in about Sharon Tate having similar taste in men because Jay Sebring and Roman Polanski were both fairly short, slight men with longish hair who looked like 12-year-old boys. He probably had that line in and wanted it to just be there. The appearance of Steve McQueen always threw me. The only reason I think he would even touch on that is because he probably wanted to back up that Rick Dalton bit later. You know, Rick Dalton being the initial Steve McQueen character in The Great Escape before Steve McQueen was. But no, that whole sequence, seeing you, you went to Michelle Phillips. I was, I went to, because you have a very passing mention of Cass Elliott, Mama Cass being in there too. And it's like, oh, hey, Cass. And then that's it. And they all kind of walk off and girl party together. I think I said this with Manson's Lost Girls. And I think it's equally apropos here. This is fan fiction. Purely and simple. This is Tarantino writing the story he wants to tell. He doesn't need any of this to be truthful. He just has a idea of he had a glimmer of an idea and wanted to live in late 1960s Hollywood for a while. And this is how he chose to do it, whether who he needed to step on or disrespect along the way. Exactly. Exactly. It's classy fan fiction. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about the ending. I want to put Sharon Tate in that storyline aside and talk about Manson 
and the lack of Manson in this movie. This is out of all the movies we've talked about, I think the movie that has the least amount of time with Manson in it. Is he even in it? He's got one scene. He's got that scene where once again, we do the infamous did, did they meet moment where JC bring answers the door. And he says, so she Terry how Melcher memorable doesn't it is. Live. That's yeah. right. It's that Paul Revere and the Raiders sequence where, yeah, he answers the door and says that the they don't live there anymore. And Sharon Tate comes out and they wave and that's it. Played by Damon Harriman, who played Manson in Mindhunter, which I'm really surprised we cut him out. But Manson really holds no weight in this movie. He just shows up in the one scene driving an ice cream truck looking for Terry Melcher. And that's it. And again, I like that this movie really hopes that true believers are watching this, or at least people that know the history, because it doesn't waste time saying who this is. You know, this is Charles Manson. You know what Manson did. So to see him, you're like, oh, I know what's happening here. But at the same time, he's in just one scene in this finished movie. Now, I'm assuming, much like what we know now, Tarantino's talked about having a far longer cut. And supposedly there are more scenes with more people. So maybe there there was more more Manson along the way. But the way it stands with just this one sequence, he's not really a boogeyman, nor is he much of anything. He's there for the name recognition. He's there because you expect a movie about the Tate scenario to include Manson. And that's another thing I kind of have a sticky problem with, the concept that if you have Sharon Tate in this movie, ergo, you have to have Manson. You cannot have one without the other. And I think that, again, Tarantino could have easily made a movie about Rick Dalton and Sharon Tate without ever mentioning Manson. So as it is here, you don't really know much about him. He doesn't have a character. He doesn't have a purpose. Even when Cliff Booth goes out to Spawn Ranch, they ask where Charlie is. They're like, he's not here. So he really holds no sway. And thus, the balance of power shifts to the girls and to Tex, which I'm not saying Tarantino kind of pushes culpability to them, but based on how the ending comes out, which all would have been categorically untrue, I think he does change the power dynamic to the, the girls and techs how far more power than Manson, at least in this version. And I don't really know how I feel about that. I I mean, and I would I would say the girls. I mean, I don't even feel like Tex had much. Tex was their tool. Tex was their tool when they needed a man. But I felt like throughout that entire middle of the sequence, and it bothered me the first time I saw it, and it bothered me equally this time. The entire Spawn Ranch sequence to me is Tarantino reveling in the titillation of hippie girls grouped all together. He he likes dirty hippie girls not wearing shoes and the idea of free, cheap and easy sex. That is to me that drips from the scene getting to that point where what is it? Margaret Qualley, who gets in the car with all I could think of is her playing Ginger Rogers and it terrified me. Her getting into the car with Cliff and the lengthy amount of time she spends trying to convince him to let her give him oral sex and him turning her down. I'm going, A, Cliff Booth would not turn that down no matter how old she is. It was such a strange dynamic. And this continues. He is fascinated with the idea of these girls hanging out together, this group of women who need one guy just to do some of the heavy lifting. And, you know, we talk about Squeaky having sex with Spawn. He's reveling in the titillation in that. And it just it's it makes me feel dirty and gross and sticky everything about (laughs) that dynamic and it didn't it doesn't work for me you have such a great cast i think assembled in pretty thankless roles as the manson girls you Mm -hmm. have victoria pedretti who was fresh off of hill house recognize her yeah with uh in one scene as leslie van houten who has no purpose in this movie because uh, we can talk about what the ending says about the other crimes that we don't see in this movie. But she's there. You have Kevin Smith's daughter, Harley Quinn Smith. Margaret Qualley plays a non-murderous 
at least as far as we know, character, Pussycat, who I don't even know is actually a legit Manson girl. And then you have the the other two characters that would have been Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkel at the end. Dakota Fanning is squeaky. Dakota Fanning is squeaky foam. Yeah, exactly. And I did want to bring up, so we've talked about the Manson girls a lot in the Bugliosi, in the the 76 Helter Skelter, the emphasis was on Susan Atkins, right? In Manson's Lost Girls, the emphasis was also on Susan Atkins, if memory serves. Charlie says, we've talked about Leslie Van Houten. Here, I thought it was interesting that the emphasis, if if there's a Manson girl that gets screen time other than Pussycat, which again, is might not have actually been a real Manson girl, probably a fictional composite, is Squeaky Foam. And I think a lot of that has to do, we've talked about name recognition in the different eras. I think a lot of that is, is that unfortunately, as time has passed, Squeaky Foam has become far more name recognized than the actual murderers Mm -hmm. that committed these crimes, which I find to be really ironic. Ephraim has been in all of the movies we've talked about as a very ancillary character. Usually the one that is, was, which we all know was the one in charge of George Spahn did have sex with him to keep him happy, but really had not been a character in any of these movies, certainly not a malevolent character like she is presented here. And of course, she has also committed crimes in reality as well. And I love that the movie playing the serious music wants you to desperately believe that she is the main villain, even though Squeaky Foam didn't commit the Manson crimes. She didn't commit any of those. She, her the her she murder was only attempted. Right, right. The crimes she committed were well after her time with the Manson family. And she didn't actually kill anybody, which I find to be, you know, we talked about the ways that these movies try very hard to find a character that is less bad than the others. And I don't even think Tarantino's picking a character that's less bad. I think he's just picking a character like, who are people going to recognize? The squeaky phone's a name that their parents are going to know. So mm-hmm. this is why we pick her. It's interesting because Squeaky is in there, is named. There's a lengthy scene where she talks to Cliff. Meanwhile, I don't think he even gives Susan, Patricia, I think other than text, do we really hear another Manson girl's name? We certainly uh, Lena, don't Lena, set apart. Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham is Gypsy, which okay. also was, was, was also a real Manson girl. I mean, of the murders, murderers, though, we don't hear Susan. We don't hear, Patri- they're there, but none of them are even named, right? No, no. And I find it funny so, that Squeaky Foam is the one that's in charge. Of the, the people when they when they yeah. show up, there's the, the girl that tells Squeaky that somebody's coming. They she says, you know, keep them down, keep them down there, don't let them come up here. And when Cliff starts to come to where Spawn is staying, she is the one that sends someone out to go find Tex. Like I much of the stuff I've read about the farm and what was going on there, Squeaky Phone was not in charge. She was certainly not the go-to person when Manson was not around. Well, it's like, uh, which one was it where we had Susan, you know, planning the murders there? Oh, Manson's Lost Girls. Yeah, exactly. So it depends on the depiction and it depends on, I think this comes from filmmakers not understanding the dynamic and the cycle of abuse that was happening in that group. And as of this is what our sixth film, Mary Heron's really the only filmmaker who's even remotely touched on the fact that these, these were abused, brainwashed individuals who not, you know, obviously not excusing anything they've done. But so much of this springs from, and I keep using the word, but it springs from titillation. It, it springs from interest and fascination and wanting to be there as opposed to examining these people as human beings, as, you know, individuals who were going through trauma and such. This is rather, oh, look at how cool all these chicks hanging well, out together. You think they bang? And, well, I mean, look at just, just the camera placement. I was joking that you could get pretty drunk. If you took a shot every time the camera was on the backside of a woman in this movie, and that happens a lot, mm-hmm. Sharon Tate, not, ex- you know, she, even she is sexualized in that way. But the presentation of the Manson girls 
in this movie is very deliberate. Them singing the song that we've seen in so many movies so far, dumpster diving and walking across the street and, you know, Pussycat kind of giving Cliff Booth the eye and, you know, he's obviously interested in her and they have these kind of neat, cute moments two other times before he offers her a ride and she takes it. You brought up the car sequence. Their May-December romance is presented more as like, you don't screw with crazy, essentially. You know, that's what it really boils down to. And when he shows up at Spawn, it's very important to look at how that sequence is composed. There's a lot of young, half-naked girls played by beautiful actress, young actresses. And you have Brad Pitt, the epitome of masculinity and brawn, mm-hmm. being the lone man out there as these women are jeering him, which again, I almost thought was a commentary on Tarantino himself. You know, the concept of like, women have been jeering me for years and I'm like Brad Pitt kind of st- strutting down the street and I don't really give them any mind. You know, even, even Tex is presented as this guy who stuck giving horseback riding lessons. You know, he's really ineffective and the guy that Cliff beats the crap out of who slashes his tires, which they call Clem. And I don't know if they mean Clem Grogan, the guy Mm -hmm. that was released for the murders that he ended up committing. You know, he's easily bested by Cliff at a certain point. So all of these are just like, it almost makes you wonder if you knew nothing about the Manson family. You're like, well, these people couldn't kill their way out of a paper bag. You know, they're completely inefficient. And all of that culminates with the actual murder sequence at the end of this movie. It's such simplistic character development when you think on it, because I was coming up with a little bit earlier, Sharon Tate's a symbol. Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski especially are a symbol, and that's how they're used throughout. Where we see them, it's their young, idealistic, gorgeous symbols of what young Hollywood was at the time. What do we see them doing? She's sleeping in her big, you know, pillowy pink bed. She's rocking out to music. She's they're driving around having a blast. This is is, her death is the death of innocence. Exactly. Death of it's the death of the 60s. How wonderful that Sharon Tate comes to be synonymous with an entire era. And at the same time, Cliff and Rick are symbols of the days gone by they and are the future. they it's masculinity they are symbols of a certain breed of masculinity little more than that i and i would be willing to bet tarantino's probably doing some, some projection into one if not both of those characters they're probably speaking for some symbol of some semblance of his personality that he's trying to get through it reeks of whatever the male equivalent of a mary sue is Exactly. I want to, before we get into the ending, I want to bring up an article that Quentin Tarantino, a comment that he had made about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he said, quote, I think it's horrible that she's been defined by her murder. And one of the things that I can say about the film that I am absolutely proud of because of the movie, I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. I don't think she is defined by her victim status I think people were very intrigued by Margot Robbie's performance of her. If you watch those Manson specials, they're heartbreaking because she means something to you now as opposed to just a statistic. And for him, he thinks that his movie has prevented her from being defined by her murder. And I don't think that means what he thinks it means. He's giving himself an awful lot of credit for something that's not at all the case. He is heaping a lot of importance into a bloated film that honestly is not one of his best. He, in that performance, you have a young, innocent, blonde woman coming in and doing a few things. That is not injecting character into Sharon Tate. It is injecting the image of innocence and... I would say that I would say that whole performance is thriving on her victimhood. She is and, there because she's a victim and because she's a young, innocent white woman and little more than that. Well, take Sharon Tate out of it. Tarantino's also made comments and we're, I don't want to get into it too much because the movie is so long and 
you know, so much of this series is about the Manson part of it, but look at the way that he's, he framed Bruce Lee in this movie. He's taken a lot of flack for the presentation of Bruce Lee in this film. And I really continues it, to open his mouth, which she continues to bring up. Exactly. I do think that Mike Moe, who plays Bruce Lee, is very good. I thought he was great. And I think he's a very dynamic performer in a role that is probably written very poorly. And if we're talking about people being defined by their by this film, I think that there's going to be, unfortunately, a generation of Tarantino lovers who assume that Bruce Lee was a petty, self-angredizing guy who really wasn't that good. You know, and, and I have a real problem with that. You know, I do love that this is a movie about men trying to redefine themselves in a changing world. Mm -hmm. And Bruce Lee did that. You know, he brought martial arts. He was one of, you know, few Asian men to bring martial arts into the mainstream and have it be respected and be able to make American films. And, and be able to make American TV shows and put himself out there. And to watch him get up during that fight sequence and like crack his joints. I mean, that's, I think that that's the part of, of Bruce Lee where I'm just kind of like, why didn't you tell me a story about Bruce Lee having to really put up with a lot of, let's be real, white dudes in Hollywood who thought that he was beneath them. And that's really what I think that that sequence irks me the most is that, Cliff Booth doesn't just start a fight with Bruce Lee, which I'm not going to believe he would have won. But also the fact that when the Zoe Bell character shows up, Janet, who I, I love Zoe Bell and I like her in this, this movie, even though she's one of many shrewish wives in this film because Tarantino loves him as shrew. But when she shows up, she says to Kurt Russell's character, you know, this guy was, quote, kicking the shit out of Bruce, who's the star of the show. And that's really my big thing is I was like, yeah, let's be, let's talk turkey. This is a nobody stuntman dude who's a glorified extra on this, who's thinking it's okay to start a fight with a guy who's making way more money than he is. But yet Bruce Lee's pride is the problem. I am going to throw out a reading here and feel free to shoot me down that came up to me as we were watching. So we talk about Cliff and Rick as symbols of a certain masculinity in Hollywood, a certain era in Hollywood. This film takes an awful lot of hostility on Bruce Lee trying to knock him down a peg. I think we see that in the women as well. They're trying to preserve the nostalgia in Hollywood, they're trying to preserve the way things were. They're trying to preserve the Hollywood that we all the, the, we all know there were problems in Hollywood. We all know there are problems with representation. We all know there were problems with racism, with depictions. It's a very racist take. It's that's plain and simply. Yeah. And I, Bruce Lee was honestly watching the Green Hornet, he's the most memorable portion of it. I like the Green Hornet. I And yeah, it should not have flown. And that film, Tarantino continues to put his foot in his mouth in terms of he will not let this point die. He has this has been an issue since Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out the depiction of Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee's daughter came out against it. There's been a number of people who have spoke out. And film has the power to define, it has the power to, one depiction of an actor can change, can influence societal perceptions. And it was a very questionable choice to use Bruce Lee. I cannot say I know much about him other than playing Cato. I am not very well viewed on his work, but it's problematic all over the place. And he seems to overestimate his importance on certain things and underestimate in another. And I'm going to say this. I came out and I, after I saw this and I still believe it, this film is an example of Quentin Tarantino believing his own hype. That could very well be the case. I want to talk about the ending, the revisionist element of it. And I want to pre preface it with this. I love Inglorious Bastards. But I feel like with Inglorious Bastards, you can do revisionist history because I don't know unless you're a certain type of person. If you are, I don't think you would have been listening this long to this episode or listening to this show in general. 
unless you're a certain type of person, I don't really think there's a lot of people that wouldn't be like, yeah, revising history to murder Hitler. That sounds okay. I mean, Hitler is a clear cut villain. There's not fight that really. No, there's nobody that's going to argue that. And and so it's easy to do revisionist history. I mean, there's a whole Nazi exploitation genre of film that exists because of that. We talked about Tate's exploitation in Haunting of Sharon Tate. And I feel like this movie doesn't really cross into that to the extent that Daniel Farrens was making with that movie. By going in the direction it goes in, I think it's just as questionable. So the movie culminates with the Manson family, Tex, Susan, Patricia Cranwinkle, Susan Atkins, and not Linda Kasabian. It's Maya Hawk playing a character called Flower Child, which I don't know why we wouldn't have just called her Linda Kasabian. That's what she is. Research bar. Yeah. So they all show up to Cielo Drive to do what they were supposed to do. And Rick Dalton, it's one of my, I love Leo in this movie. I'm going to say that we, we don't have time to talk about it, but I, I think he's so good playing that petty, whiny Hollywood star that we know exists somewhere. He comes out and berates them. And right away, I was struck by A, the Mansons were Susan and Tex and Patricia were admitted they were high at that point, which why Tex Watson didn't just pick up a gun and shoot him considering what they were doing. That's one element where I was like, huh, okay, this is a kinder, softer Tex Watson, apparently. So they get berated and they decide to change the plan. And instead of killing the Tate group, they're going to kill Rick Dalton just on his own, I guess. And so they go in and it's Cliff there. And what culminates is a 15 minute scene of people being murdered on camera. Tarantino violence for 15 straight minutes. Well, see, here's the thing. So here's what I wanted to talk about. Outside of the fact that, yeah, if, if knowing what we know about the Manson family now, Tex Watson would have shot him without, without having any compunction for it. He would have. I don't know, honestly, why he didn't. And also there's this extended sequence where, hey, remember how I talked about you can tell a lot from a movie based on who Charlie tells to do something witchy? He tells Tex in this movie because the man's got to know. And they have this discussion in the car that feels very much like a Tarantino discussion about how we have to go kill the guy that taught us how to kill, which I was like, you guys are going to blame TV. It would be Manson, but maybe that's Tarantino's cheeky, like, haha, they're dumb because mm-hmm. they don't see the obvious. But also I was really struck by, again, going to that conceit that he puts the women in charge because the girls are the ones that decide let's not kill who he told us to kill. Let's go kill this guy that just irked us, which goes against the entire thing that I think we've watched and researched and read about the Manson girls is that they had no will. They would not have gone against what he said. If he had told them to kill everybody in this house on Cielo Drive, they would not have gone to another house to kill somebody. The point of him picking that residence was everything. It wasn't just that he was trying to get Tex out of a bind with the drug dealer, Lots of Papa, but also that he felt slighted by Terry Melcher. Them not going to Cielo Drive and killing those people changes everything you know about the Mansons. And it makes them even pettier and dumber for them to go to this guy that just talked crap to them in the middle of the street. For all they know, he was the only person in that house that they would have killed. That would have totally gone against Manson's aims. It just seems like poor research to say, like, look how dumb the Manson family is. Like, no, they were dumb, yes. But they had deep logic for everything they were doing right or wrong. The hands of the screenwriter are all over this thing. I won't even necessarily say lack of research. Tarantino knew what he wanted to happen. And this is it's clunky, clumsy, twisting in order to get what he needs to happen to happen. He's not invested in any of this history. He wants that revisionist element, which is to me poorly crafted. I would have rather watched, as we talked about last week, Sharon Tate with a shotgun killing the Manson family. At least that would have brought some catharsis to it. 
honestly, with how this thing is structured as is, it's another dig at Sharon Tate because not only is she a non-factor, she's ignorant next door. They Cliff has to come over and fill them in as to what happened. Any and all agency she could potentially have and that the haunting of Sharon Tate desperately wanted to give her, it's absent here. She's Tarantino literally is twisting this story so hard and twisting these characters that he hasn't really wanted to develop beyond shots of their feet, you know, hanging out at Spawn Ranch and the occasional blowjob reference. He doesn't know these people. He knows the idea of these people that he hasn't backed up and he knows what he, how he wants this to end. Plain and simple. Inglorious Bastards had thought behind it. It was a very interesting, compelling film. And this is too much. This movie is complex and bloated. And he has such a thinly disguised idea of what he wants, but he has no idea how to execute. Well, it's fascinating when this movie came out, the people arguing as much for the 15 minute sequence of violence as against it. And I think of Tarantino and I get that. I think it it starts out really well. Like anytime you're going to start a movie with the opening five minutes of vanilla fudges, you keep me hanging on. Like that's a good way to start something. My problem is, is, and I rewatched it and I can tell you every time I've watched this movie and we get to the sequence, I have to mute it because I can't, I physically get upset hearing it because it's not just, that these characters are being killed. It's how gleefully violent it is. Tex Mm -hmm. Watson is being practically disemboweled by a dog. Cliff Booth is spending 10 minutes bashing Susan Atkins' face into a fireplace mantle. Patricia Krenwinkel is essentially has her nose crushed into the back of her skull. I mean, it's just And there were people, friends that I talked to that said, you know, if your problem is that you don't think the Manson family should have been killed, you know, what does that say about you? And I don't necessarily think it's that the I'm seeing the Manson family being killed. And we've talked about this. We talked about this with Charlie Says. Is there a possibility for you to ever see these people as victims, these women as victims? And Charlie Says tried to make an argument for that. The problem is, is that, So much of it, again, is on knowing what happened, the reality of the situation. As it plays in this movie, these characters never killed anybody. These characters, I'm not saying the real people, these characters. We're discussing this film. Don't send us angry emails. Yes, please do not send me angry emails. These characters in this film did not kill anybody. And with that, Tarantino wants his cake, wants to eat it too. Please look at Sharon Tate, not as a victim defined by her murder, but please remember that she was murdered. Please celebrate in the family being murdered, but they didn't actually murder anybody in this movie. So I hope you remember that they actually stabbed a pregnant woman. You know, you can't have it both ways. And this movie really, I have a problem with watching such joyous violence against women, because that's the other thing too. If you watch how long the women are murdered, in comparison to Tex Watson, it says a lot. It says a lot. And the fact that Cliff Booth's character mm-hmm. is already accused of murdering his wife, who again is Which a is made out as a joke. Yeah, so, who's again a shrew, so I guess she had it coming. You know, if anybody's a murderer in this movie, it is Cliff Booth, but he's the hero. And I have a real problem with that. And then at the end, yeah, the, you know... Everybody goes off to the hospital. The Manson family is, well, these three members are killed. And it ends with Rick Dalton entering the pearly gates, so to speak, the literal gates of the Polanski house. So, A, he profited off of his uh, attempted death because he complains early in the movie about living next to the Polanskis and like he could put them in a movie if he wanted, but they've never met. Thank you for not dying, Sharon Tate. Now you can put Rick Dalton in a movie now because he lives next door. So A, he profits off of that that trauma. The character of Rick Dalton profits off that trauma. And also, you know, it ends with this fairy tale concept of Sharon Tate lives to see the next August day. And it's just a slow 
downhill climb waiting for Roman Polanski to screw up so that he she can be with Jay Sebring. You know, it all's well that supposedly ends well. But again, because you've made this movie where I remember how reality worked, my issue at the end of the movie was, okay, Tex Watson, Patricia Cranwinkle, and Susan Atkins are dead. So does that mean the LaBiancas don't die the next day? Do they live? I don't know. I mean, in theory, we know that the LaBiancas were killed because the Tate killings were A, very sloppy, and B, were not blamed on the Black Panthers like Charlie Manson wanted. So do they not die? Did Stephen Parent live? He's not even a factor in this. I had a, I, I was really like, okay, so you want me to believe that this is a fairy tale version, but you're not really talking about the other people whose lives would have been affected. You know, like the, the LaBiancas, did they live happily ever after? Does Manson not become this terrifying figure? And based on history, based on what we know about what happened with the Tate killings, I would argue that the LaBiancas still die at that point because the original aim of why he created those Mm -hmm. first murders was not achieved. Honestly, you remove Tex, Susan, and Patricia, you still have Charlie. You still have an untold number of liable women at the ranch. Yeah, Bobby Beausoleil. I mean, you still have all of them. And there, that is such, I, I like how you said that. The violence in that last 15 minutes is gleeful. And I, that was another one where I felt almost, I remember the first time I watched that, I felt almost sick. And I was a child of the 80s. I'm used to big, flashy action films. I think your analysis is spot on in that Carantino was trying to have his cake and eat it too. That violence in that last 15 minutes is crafted specifically because this is the Manson family. It is okay to do this to them. It is, we are supposed, that is supposed to be a cheer moment to see Cliff and Rick flamethrowing these people to death. That is supposed to be something to elicit sympathy and cheers from the audience. However, I'm tell does you, not understand the history. I'm going to tell you, I cheered when we watched The Haunting of Sharon Tate. And she I did too. I did too. Tex Watson in the face with the shovel. Like I cheered for that because again, the victims That's are the precisely ones. it. Yes. Yes, they are. We are supposed to cheer at that, but he loses any and all emotional pull in that sequence by having Cliff and Rick doing it. By treating Sharon Tate as nothing but a symbol. And like you, like you said, Stephen Parent, I don't think Abigail Folger and Frykowski are even in the film. They're maybe nameless faces in the they house. They are. They're, they're there. They're, they're there's the, like a musical sequence where Abigail Folger is they dance. Is that where they're, da- they're dancing to the Eleven Spoonful it, or something? No, no, no. It's at, towards the end. It's towards okay. the end where, where he's talking, the, the Kurt Russell narration comes in something. Abigail Folger smoked oh, joint read a book that's right that's which right. Frykowski enjoyed american tv better than polish tv and he smoked a joint that's right it, they're they're barely i mean once again I, i've seen this movie twice and this is yeah this is it, the handling of these characters is so unmemorable tarantino is so desperate to explore the forgotten masculinity of the 1950s male in what he does with Rick. And he doesn't understand that by removing that agency from the victims, he's losing the power of that story and he's tweaking it for the worst. Exactly. So all in all, I mean, I think that if we were to look at all of the movies we've talked about this month, I mean, I definitely recommend Charlie Says. I think even the 2004 Helter Skelter is worth watching if you want a nice kind of Cliff Notes version into everything. I think The Haunting of Sharon Tate, I said it in the last episode, is an interesting experiment. This is, um, it's beautiful to look at. It's got a great soundtrack and it's two thirds of a decent movie. Again, I we didn't talk about them, but I think the Leo plot line and the parts of the Cliff Booth storyline are worth watching. But yes, it, as a Manson movie, it just, it falls flat. But I'm glad we got to talk about the different series and the ways this all went out. I would agree. I think if you're watching any of these, I would say Charlie says definitely. If you're like me and have a little bit of an older sensibility as it relates, I have to throw out a plug for the 1976 Helter Skelter. I thought that was a very 
interesting construction of it. Long, yes, a a beast of a length, but it was, I found it a very interesting handling of the topic. Once upon a time in Hollywood, I can, after watching it a second time, I can completely concur with the fact that there's some very good elements here. He had some good ideas. And as a love letter to a nostalgic era in Hollywood, it works. But this sucker needed a red pencil. The Manson elements in this film to me are terrible. He misses the point. There are more flaws than anything else. This film struggles hard as it relates to the Manson Tate stuff. And I could not recommend it in good conscience from that perspective. Listeners, let us know your thoughts on all the Manson movies or any of the based on true podcast episodes we've talked about in this true crime summer. We're going to be closing this volume of Based on a True Podcast. And hopefully we will be bringing this back with more interesting true crime biopics down the line. But we hope you've enjoyed it. As always, you can find us on social media at ticklish underscore biz. We're also on Instagram at ticklishbiz. I apologize for the airplane that's flying directly overhead, as well as our YouTube channel. You have to search for that right now as we don't have enough subscribers to get a custom url so if you aren't following us on that please do so as well as subscribe to us yeah and well hopefully we will have a direct url at some point be sure to check out our website at journeysandclassicfilm.com and again if you have friends that enjoy classic hollywood new hollywood biopics any of that help us do more of these fun mini series by subscribing to our patreon at patreon.com slash ticklish biz we will be back with a new season of double features coming up in September. So stay tuned for that. Till then.